In the year 1555, John Calvin, writing from Geneva, Switzerland, sent a letter to the Reformed Church of Paris, urging them not to neglect meeting together. At the time, that church was under the constant threat of being arrested and killed. They already had seen many valiant friends in the faith burned at the stake. So in this letter, Calvin first noted how, quote, no one among them does not feel more and more convinced of his weakness. Calvin recognized the great challenge to their spirit that persecution had brought. But he was being honest about their faith when he spoke of weakness. And he was certain their faith would not be fortified for all the trials that still lie ahead if they kept from assembling together. Beware of dispersion, Calvin wrote, which can only bring ruin upon you. If any keep themselves apart from their fellows, then rely upon it. You are on the point of falling prey to the wolf. Calvin meant Satan. Satan would tear them away from the faith if they abandoned the assembly. Now, Calvin was not opposed to their habit of meeting at night in private homes like they did, or in caves as they did, or in the woods as they did. He wanted this church in Paris to take precautions for life. Yet, in the most moving passage of his letter, he had this to say, Do not imagine, my brethren, that I speak as a man exempt from all anxiety on your account. I ponder the dangers to which you are exposed. But certainly we should do God this honor to make more account of his protection than all the devices of Satan and his followers. Moreover, we shall never be fit for the service of God if we look not beyond this fleeting life. True it is, the time seems long, but when we reach heavenwards and have rightly tasted of celestial joys, we shall have a haven in view to draw us on not only a few steps, but across the ocean of trials, however vast and fathomless. Now, where did John Calvin learn to think this way? Where did he learn to pastor persecuted churches this way? Where did he learn to urge weak and timid Christians in this way? He learned it from the Bible. He learned it from God's word. From passages of scripture like the one you have just heard. In Acts 12, we find the earliest Christians assembled together under the cover of night in the city of Jerusalem, while that city is hot with the rage of the king. It is the year 44 AD in Acts 12, almost 10 years since the death of Stephen, which is recorded in Acts 7. But the church of Jerusalem is now nursing a fresh wound of violence. Our text says that James, known as James the Great in church history, James the son of Zebedee, has been killed. The older brother of John, beheaded by King Herod, 
who is also known as Agrippa I. Tyrants have always, have always followed the strategy of killing leaders to strike fear and scatter those who remain. This is why James is killed. And you heard it. This is why Peter is arrested. Fox's Book of Martyrs, published in 1563, describes the very fruitful death of this James, son of Zebedee. Drawing from some ancient sources, that book says, quote, James was led to the place of martyrdom where his unnamed accuser was brought to repentance by the apostle's extraordinary courage and undauntedness. The accuser fell down at the feet of James to request pardon. It seems this accuser was like a Judas, turning James's location over to the king. The accuser fell down at the feet of James requesting pardon, professing himself a Christian, and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. And so they were both beheaded at the same time. The first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely received that cup which he had told our Savior he was ready to drink. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 20. This is Fox's Book of Martyrs recounting the death of James. Well, maybe it was the brave manner in which James died that explains how Peter could be so soundly asleep in a prison cell the night before he is to be executed as a spectacle for the Jews. Our text says Peter was sleeping so well Not even the light of the angel's presence woke him. The angel had to strike him on the side to rouse him. What a testimony to the church is this sleep of Peter's. What a testimony his sleep is of the peace that rules the heart and mind of the Christian. Psalm 4, 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What safety is this that Peter dwells in? It is the safety the Lord creates for his children. Where did he create this safety for us? In the blood of the covenant he has made with us through the death and resurrection of his son. That's where he created this safety. So Ezekiel 34 Verse 25 says, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. What a beautiful new covenant promise, secured and kept by the blood of Christ. The Christian sleeps in places not favorable to sleep. The wilderness the woods, the prison cell. Why? Because Christ has banished our enemies from having any lasting power over us. In the the land of heaven, there are no dangerous beasts. There's no wrath of man. There's no wrath of God in the land of heaven. In our true and forever land, there is only peace and joy, for Christ is there in glory. 
And Peter is there by faith. And so he sleeps under the light of that glory, under its weight. Instead of worrying himself awake about, about what will become of him, instead of worrying himself awake about what will become of the church, instead of worrying himself awake about whether he has done enough good works, instead of worrying himself awake about what will become of his wife, his children, instead of all of that restlessness, Peter, by faith in Christ, and here comes the Hebrew word, he zonked out. He's asleep. Zonked out because James, in his honorable death, has assisted Peter's faith in reaching heavenward toward his true country. Beloved, Peter's sleep shows us the prosperity of a man who, by faith, makes more account of God's protection than he does of Satan's schemes. Christian, this may need to be your primary focus for the rest of 2022 to make more account of God's protection than you are making of the schemes of the devil in the world. Do not give Satan such honor. Make more account of what God is able to do, what God is willing to do, what God is doing. Even if you cannot see it all, you are going to see much here about the goodness and power of God. It should help you if this is going to be one of your chief duties in 2022. Peter's sleep shows us the prosperity of a man who by faith has tasted celestial joys. And they carry him across an ocean of trials, no matter how vast or fathomless. In his first letter, Peter, the sleeping one, wrote these things. He said, quote, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, come on, Peter. Did you take that advice yourself? Well, let me tell you about the time I slept with chains on between two centuries at the Antonia Fortress on the edge of Jerusalem. Now, while Peter was sleeping in a jail cell, some of you have already saw this, the church across town is wide awake. What are we going to make of that? It says in verse 12 that many were gathered at the house of Mary. This Mary was likely a widow, as there is no mention made of a husband, but there is mention of a son, John Mark. And Colossians 4.10 tells us John Mark was the nephew to Barnabas, which means Mary is a sister to Barnabas. And Barnabas was a man of means. We've already met him in Acts back in chapter 4. He sold a field and gave the proceeds to the church. Perhaps Mary is well kept by her brother. Anyway... On this very night that Peter is sleeping, her house is filled with people. But they're not there for a sleepover. They have come to work. They have come to do the work of prayer. They have secretly assembled together at the very hour 
the city is hot with rage. Can you imagine the flack a pastor would get for calling a prayer meeting at that time? When the city is hot with rage against Christians? And the pastor says, we all need to find a way to so-and-so's house so we can pray. Beloved, is it possible we would be alarmed by that announcement because we have enveloped ourselves in a very soft Christianity? A.W. Tozer said, American Christianity has become so diluted that if it were a poison, it would kill no one. If a medicine, cure no one. Are we so terribly alarmed by a church gathering under the hot rage of the king that we would never go and thinking ourselves wise for not doing it? Beloved, do you think it's wise to keep your life in this world by staying away from the body of Christ? There is no wisdom in that. Oh, this word of God is such a help to us. This angel's light is nothing compared to the light of Acts chapter 12. So they have come to work, not to sleep. The work of prayer. Yes, they are taking precautions. The gate to the house is locked. Remember, Rhoda didn't unlock it. It's locked for a reason. They don't want anybody just walking in without making a noise. But they must be together, this church. It's not the whole church, of course. Our text tells us that after Peter visits with them, he leaves rather quickly and goes to another place. The church is probably dispersed all throughout Jerusalem in several homes. But he goes to this one first. These Christians recognize that they do not belong to themselves anymore. They belong to one another in the body of Christ. Does your eye belong to your liver? Does your hand belong to your shoulder? Does your foot belong to your brain? Oh, yes, it does. In the body of Christ, we don't belong to ourselves anymore, and we are completely excited about that. We should be. To the degree that we're not, it's simply because we have stopped listening to the word. And the Lord will revive us, as he's doing even this hour. Now, here's a house full of Christians not sleeping, like Peter. Should they have been? Was it wrong for them to be awake deep in the night? Were they awake because they had such little faith? No, no, and no. Though they were awake, it is because they were under the control of the same power and persuasion which had put Peter to sleep. The power of the risen Christ kept them awake in prayer and the power of the risen Christ kept Peter asleep at peace. Now, if you have ever thought it wrong for Christians to have prayer meetings at night in private homes, verse 12 is a correction to you. Here is even a little more correction. In 1599, 
the Geneva Bible was published. This was before the King James came along. The Geneva Bible became the most influential English Bible of the 17th century. It was the only Bible on the Mayflower. Why did it become so popular? One reason was it became, it, is it came, when it came off the printing press, it came with marginal study notes. Those notes comprised 300,000 words, which was one-third the number of words of the entire Bible itself. Who wrote those notes? John Calvin, John Knox, Miles Coverdale, William Whittingham, Theodore Beza, Anthony Gilby, and yes, you know where this is going. There is a study note there on Acts 12.12. 12. One little note from our fathers and brothers in the faith. Hear it. Quote, Holy meetings in the nights of both men and women, when they cannot take place in the daytime, are allowable by the example of the apostles. Close quote. The wisdom of our fathers and brothers in the faith. That's an excellent note. Now, what exactly was the church praying about that night while Peter is sleeping on a stone floor? We don't know for sure what they were praying about. Our text doesn't say. What is of first importance, however, is that they were praying. They knew what prayer was. They knew their place in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Their prayer meeting was not chiefly motivated by the desperate and low condition that Peter was in. It was chiefly motivated by the high and exalted position Jesus Christ is in. They believed the testimony of Jesus to be true when he said, after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Matthew 28, 18. When they assembled that night for prayer under the raging heat of earthly lords, they confirmed to their faith that they were co-heirs with Christ in ruling and reigning over the kingdoms of men. That's what prayer is. Christ shares his dominion with his bride through the prayers that his providence seeds and sets into their hearts. In one of his lessons on prayer, Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says those words because of words he said earlier in the very same letter. Ephesians 1, verse 22. God has seated his Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. God has put all things under his feet and gave to him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that's some great theology. 
It means there is nothing that is not subject to Christ for the sake of the church. Nothing. And this makes the church warm easily to prayer. The violent death of James on one day, the miraculous escape of Peter on the next day. Whether we have a year of ease or a year of trouble, nothing is not subject to Christ for the sake of the church. Whether people do us right or whether they do us wrong, there is nothing that is not subject to the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of his church. The rise and fall of stock prices, the rise and fall of home prices, the rise and fall of nations, there is nothing that is not subject to the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of his church. Do not misread James's end and Peter's end on this same week. The Lord wills both, but not a sovereignty for sovereignty's sake, a sovereignty for the sake of his church. Jesus rules the world, either by the ordinary or the extraordinary, but all for the sake of the church. And so if you don't have sandals, it is even right to pray, Lord, give me some shoes. Look the attention the Lord gives to Peter's sandals in the prison cell. And look at how the Lord gives attention to Peter's cloak and to the streets that they walk on. All of these ordinary things, the Lord testifies to the church by his angel that all of these belong to the Lord, and they are not to be discounted, but they are all to be subservient to the sovereign Lord and his church. Your iPod your vacation, your 50 pairs of shoes are all to be subservient to the reign of Christ for the good of his church. Now, I want you to notice, please, in verse 17, how Peter describes all that has happened to him that brought him to Mary's house. It says, quote, he motioned to them with his hand to be silent. You know, how many dads have tried that? It doesn't always go well. Learn from Peter. Then he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. What did he say? Not the angel, but the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus rules over whether a Christian is in prison or outside of a prison, like you all are today, or escaping from a prison. Peter does not attribute his release to the angel. He doesn't have 17 chapters of notes with him on the life of angels suddenly talking about whether they have southern accents or not or how to spot them in the mall. Peter has none of that fascination with angels. He talks about the Lord. He ascribes all the angels' work to the Lord. 
Now, I want to loop back to that earlier question. What exactly was the church praying about that night? We don't know for sure. But it seems safe to say they were praying for Peter. But it is not safe to say they were praying for Peter to escape Herod's wrath. They may rather have been praying for Peter to be so at peace that he could sleep. And if that was their prayer, the Lord gave. But as every Christian knows from Ephesians 3.20, the Lord is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Oh, what a wonderful truth for us. In his goodness and in his power, on that very night, the Lord gave something they asked for, Peter to be at peace, and the Lord gave something they did not ask for, Peter to be released from prison. Whatever their prayers were, this release of Peter in the final hours before his execution is an encouragement to all of us to pray and not give up, isn't it? Now, there is something in our text that truly supports the view that the church was not praying for Peter's release, and that is their disbelief. When Peter is actually released, he's standing outside Mary's house. He's standing on the other side of a locked gate, cannot get in. Rhoda has run away in her joy and hilarity. She forgot to unlock the gate, and none of them believe that Peter's escaped, because none of them were anticipating it, because none of them were praying for it, not on the last day. They tell Rhoda, the servant girl, she must be out of her mind. So either they were not praying for this outcome, or perchance they were praying for it but couldn't believe it when it happened, which means they are of little faith. Either way, this is the important point. The church is to see in this incident that God's goodness is not measured out to his children by the quality of their faith. His goodness toward us is measured out by his own character, not according to our character. And it is seeing this goodness that actually increases our faith. Beloved, Think not the Lord to be measuring his goodness to you by your character. It is by the character of Jesus Christ. You have things you have not asked for in prayer because of the Lord's goodness. This should melt your heart in love and adoration of God. Now, you may have noticed something in this scene with Rhoda. It is something we have seen several times already in the book of Acts. The life of the apostles has become a tight imitation of Christ's own earthly life. And we're seeing it again right now with Rhoda. We saw this recently in Acts 9. Recall, when Peter entered the house of Dorcas in the seaside village of Joppa, Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, had died. Do you remember Peter? He goes into her room, kneeling at her bedside, praying. He takes her hand and he says, Tabitha, arise. And suddenly she was alive again. 
the scene at Joppa was almost identical to Jesus's visit to Jairus's house a few years earlier in Capernaum. Jairus's daughter had died. Jesus entered her room. He took her by the hand. He doesn't need to pray. He is the Lord. But he says, not Tabitha, arise. He says, Talithi kum me. Meaning, little girl, I say to you, arise. And suddenly she was alive again. What is happening? The Lord wants us to see that the lives of the apostles are in tight imitation to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It means that Christ's authority rests upon the apostles. But not only that, it also confirms that Christ himself is still with his church in power and goodness until the very end of the age. He wants the church to be encouraged as this tight imitation between his miracles in his earthly ministry are visible again in the apostolic ministry. Well, here we have it again with Rhoda. Peter, whom everyone was thinking to be as good as dead, not dead yet, but on the eve of death, he suddenly appears to a woman of low rank. And Rhoda, the lowly servant girl, she becomes the first witness that day of the power of God through Jesus Christ. Where have we seen this before? It is a tight imitation of our Lord's own resurrection morning. Jesus was not near unto death. He was dead, dead and buried for three days. But suddenly on a Sunday morning, Jesus appeared in a garden to a woman of low rank. Who was she? Mary Magdalene whom he cast seven demons out of. He appears not first to the apostles, but to a Rhoda-like woman, Mary. And what did Mary do upon seeing him? The text says in the gospel, she was filled with great joy and ran off to tell the disciples. And how did the disciples react when Mary got to them and said, I have seen the master, he's alive. What did the disciples say? Luke 24, 11 it seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe it. But of course, their weakness of faith did not keep Jesus from soon pressing himself into the very room where they ate fish. Beloved, what lesson are we to take from Rhoda's joy? Simply this wonderful truth of our Lord. Those who are last shall be first. Those who are last shall be first. Rhoda, the servant girl, was the first to see the power of the risen Christ working through the release of Peter. This is to be an encouragement to everyone who is stuck in a low station in life, like Rhoda. You know, we often think, I never want to be a Rhoda. I never want to be a servant girl. I want to be a kingmaker or a king. I want to be at least middle class. Beloved, look at the word of God. Look at Mary Magdalene and her joy. Look at Rhoda and her joy. 
There is nothing about your low station in life that Jesus Christ despises. Are you an underage son? An underage daughter? That's a low station in life. Jesus Christ, who has the highest office in heaven and earth, does not despise the low station. He comes and visits even a lowly eight-year-old and gives them greater faith than some 80-year-olds. Do not despise the low station. In fact, Jesus, our Savior, says, your low station makes you more likely to be one whom God chooses to see the glory and power of his Son. Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I wonder how many Christians would be willing to stand next to Jesus and rejoice with him for the very point he just made. I too, Father, thank you, as did my Savior, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. We would praise him for revealing them to little children, but will we join Jesus and praise the Father for hiding them from the wise and the understanding, the mighty, the important people? Beloved, this is what brings your Savior to praise the Father. Why won't it bring you to such praise? Do you think it is not fair? Beloved, grace, if it were fair, would crush us all because it wouldn't be grace. Lowly Rhoda becomes one who testifies to the rule and authority of Christ when she runs back to the house. And I want you to hear this really clearly, especially if you are of a low station. The highest calling a human can receive in this life is to be one who bears testimony to the power and goodness of Jesus Christ. If you have a million dollars under your control right now and own a house or two or three, and you cannot testify to men of the power and goodness of the risen Christ, you have not benefited at all from your high station in this world. But if you own hardly nothing, and you can testify, like Rhoda, to the power and goodness of the risen Christ, you have received the highest calling, though you are in the lowest station of men. Children, pass us up. Go ahead of us. Give testimony in the public worship of God for the rest of your life to the power and the goodness of the risen Christ. You will have obtained the highest station and calling a man or woman can obtain. Do this better than we have. It is your gift from the Lord. You do not need to be high in the world to be called to this wonderful height of the kingdom. You do not even need to see Peter at your door tonight. 
Don't think to yourself, well, that would help me. If I got home tonight and there was a rapping on my door at 2 a.m. and there was Peter, that would help me become one who testifies to the power and goodness of the risen Christ. Beloved, you don't need to see that. Everything you need to see is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ revealed to you right now in this service of worship through the word of God. Because it is God who governs the fruitfulness of his word. Hearing these things, he gives his Holy Spirit to those lowly ones whom he has chosen. And they hear these things as if they were looking through the clearest window. That Jesus Christ is the head of the church. That he is the Lord of the heavens and the Lord of the earth. So children, because I know you are in a low station... I say this to you, being in the church of Jesus Christ puts you on the right side of the power that is above all earthly powers. There's nowhere else to be to get on the right side of the power above all earthly powers. That's why the servant girl Rhoda is so blessed. And that power, of course, is the power of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and raised up for our justification. So I close with these words to you, congregation of Jesus Christ. Give more account and more honor to the protection of God than you give to anything that you see going on in the world among men. No matter how much the nations rage against God and his Christ, do not yield in fear or trembling. Give account and honor to the protection of God, of his church in Jesus Christ, even if he takes some of us out of the world. Even if half of the congregation apostatizes and returns to heresy. Give all honor to the protection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God. And you will have the joy of heaven already dwelling in you, and you will fear no man. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we confess, O Lord, how much we need to hear these reports from Acts 12. Though not a single member of our church is in prison, we still so easily languish and fall under the things that we see by our eyes. We see wicked men happier than we, and we begin to doubt the Christian faith. We see wicked men more well-adjusted socially than we, and we begin to doubt the Christian faith. We see Christians mocked all around us. We see those who are most serious about godliness made fun of even by other Christian brothers. And we begin to doubt the Christian faith. We thank you for the the reports of Acts 12. We thank you for how it testifies to the lowly among us that the power of he who is seated at the right hand of God 
the goodness of he who is seated at the right hand of God is all for us and for us over all. There is not a single square inch upon the earth or in the heavens that isn't ruled by our Savior and Lord for the advantage of his church. O Father, keep us from our feeble sense and let us live by faith in the things that we have just seen in your word, the things that have happened, the things that belong to us as surely as they belong to anyone in that house that night. For we are in your house. And your apostle Luke has run to us with his pencil and has reported us the wonders of your goodness and power. And Father, we pray that we would see the destiny of the wicked in the death of Herod, that we would see how you have brought an end to his words as he boasted in himself and heard men boasting in him. And you said, no, yet your word increased and multiplied. May this be a great support to us in our weakness, that we would not find the wicked an attractive society to fellowship with, that we would instead bring them the testimony of your goodness and power, but not desire to be like them. And Father, set our eyes on heaven. Help us reach for those celestial joys that very soon we shall be done. And then we shall indeed be at peace. Set heaven's peace in us now. Put us to sleep, put us to prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.